Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Vladimir Babich, who is a professor of operations and information management at Georgetown University. Professor Babich's research interests are at the interface of operations and finance, supply risk management, supply chain management, stochastic modeling, and risk management. He serves as an associate editor for management science, M and SOM, and Naval Research Logistics, and is a research editor for production and operations management journals. Welcome, Vlad. Thank you. Uh, I want to start with one of your papers entitled, uh, Does Crowdfunding Benefit Entrepreneurs and Venture Capital Investors? In which you study how a new development in entrepreneurship, um, crowdfunding, not that new anymore, but uh, uh, relatively new, interacts with more traditional financing sources such as venture capital investors and bank financing. Um, so, so you, so you're looking at, you know, sort of the, yeah, if an entrepreneur goes out and does some crowdfunding, there is some information revealed, uh, to possible sort of a traditional funding sources, like, uh, like taking a debt from a bank or venture capital. And you're right. looking at what that information, uh, revelation, what effects those information revelations have in the market, right? That's right. That's right. Um, it's a very interesting area in, in general, the entrepreneurial finance. Um, it's a yeah. very important area, uh, right? So for most of the entrepreneurs, there's really no separation between the question of uh, raising money and succeeding um, and you know, doing marketing, doing product development. Uh, it's kind of uh, everything has to be taken together. Um, and so in this paper, we are looking just, as you mentioned, at this new source of financing that uh, became very, very popular since 2009 or so when the Kickstarter became uh, the platform where everybody would go for crowdfunding financing projects. 
Um, yeah, it was really popular, I guess, uh, early on. I remember, uh, Rod, that even Google actually considered <laughs> going on the, on the crowdfunding platform. Yeah, yeah. There, there were lots of interesting projects at the time from trying to finance a mission to, to the moon, if I remember correctly, to yeah. uh, getting financing for um, movies, dances, uh, art. Um, it's actually a very interesting development in general. It's uh, went away from the front pages of the business publications. But as the concept, as the development, it's still very much alive and the the platforms, they continue to grow. It's just that they have been uh, sunsetted by new technologies like blockchain, for example, that became more prominent. Um, The interesting part for me there was that the crowdfunding in itself typically is not enough to finance the entire product. Um, it's just right. one of the steps that you have to go through as entrepreneur, um, trying to get your idea off the ground. Um, and right. what we wanted to study is the interaction, um, the idea that this is a catalyst potentially for getting additional resources um, going mm-hmm. forward. And indeed, there's so some in, in some sense. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say, in some sense, it's sort of a um, kickstart or seed funding, right? Um, mm-hmm. The company still needs to go out and get more money, but it sort yep. of get them going. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we saw empirical evidence and anecdotal evidence going both ways. There's certainly uh, plenty of evidence showing that if company like um, or projects like Oculus Rift is successful on Kickstarter. It goes on being extremely successful in the VC area and then ultimately becomes a successful product. But we also had evidence that some of the projects that received the financing on Kickstarter uh, then failed to raise money with the VCs. Or even worse, some of the projects that uh, seems to be getting financing initially from the VCs um, didn't get as much interest after they were successful on the Kickstarter. Hmm. And, and so, so when the entrepreneur... Yeah, curious why, uh, right? when the, go ahead. Yeah, it's curious why is this happening, right? So yeah. what what yeah. is the, the uh, Kickstarter campaign, successful campaigns, what do they do to those interactions between entrepreneurs and VCs and the regular investors? You know, how does it change it? And that, that's what this paper is studying, trying to understand if you get the signal, and the signal comes in two ways, right? So you get, uh, yeah. if your project is successful, um, first of all, you get a, ver- a verifiable signal about how much people like the product, like your idea, right? These are your customers to whom you sell in your product, effectively pre-selling ahead of time. And this is a more powerful signal than you would do through market analysis, through polling, through you know, getting together 100 people, 1,000 people and asking, do you, would you buy this product? Would you buy that version of the product? So people actually buying your product ahead of time. So this is a very uh, strong signal that they like it if uh, they're willing to fund it ahead of time. And then, of course, you get yeah, in so the... Mo- sort of, um... 
Yeah, it's sort of um, wrapping um, money raising and market testing into mm-hmm. into a single activity, right? So, yeah. you know, when uh, when an entrepreneur uh, starts off, he or she doesn't really have a good idea uh, of market acceptance, and hence uh, he or she doesn't really have a good idea of the valuation of the idea, right? Mm-hmm. And exactly. so when they go on this a platform like this, they're getting a market test. They're, they're getting a signal as to market acceptance. And that resolves some uncertainty from a valuation perspective, right? Mm-hmm. That is one of the issues, one of the, yeah. one, not necessarily an issue, but uh, it has implications for both entrepreneur and the capital provider. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Now, it sounds like it should always be a good thing to be successful in this type of market and this type of step. And in fact, VCs often ask the uh, entrepreneurs to go through the crowdfunding step as a way of gaining this information. So this is a way for the VCs to figure out should they continue funding the project or not. Um, But, um, you know, we also have that evidence that on the other hand, some projects are not doing so well after being successful. And so what we try to do, we try to uh, create a framework for us to think about this problem. And our framework is a theoretical framework. It's a framework of constructing a a model uh, of thinking about the process of interactions between the entrepreneur and the sources of financing and adding the crowdfunding to this mix and using the knowledge that we have of the um, game theory and contract design um, and the knowledge from area of finance on the sources of financial frictions that might prevent good projects from being funded, uh, we then able to understand uh, why crowdfunding has this kind of very uh, divergent effects. On one hand, it could be positive, on the yeah. other hand, negative. For which circumstances is it positive? For which circumstances is it negative? So that's that's uh, where the paper is uh, making a contribution. Yeah. So so what did you what were your conclusions uh, from the paper? Uh, like most academic papers, the answer is always it depends. Um, and the whole <laughs> right. right and 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 uh, for us, what's interesting to us is being able to explain uh, the non obvious part, which is why. Why would the venture capitalists be worse off if the project is successful in the campaign? Why would the entrepreneurs be worse off if the project is not successful in the campaign? And kind of more generally, if we take the policymaker perspective, if we step back and we say, do we want to encourage in our economy development of crowdfunding platforms? Are they the kind of tide that... Uh, rises all boats? Are they benefiting everybody, all of the entrepreneurs? Are they all going to be better off if we offer them this option to go through the crowdfunding campaign? And finding that the answer is no, not everybody will be better off. And the explanation comes from um, observing that um, for some of the projects, um, the crowdfunding by revealing to the entrepreneurs and everybody else credibly how uh, good the project is. Um, It 
increases the competition between the various financing sources. And also competition, yeah. of course, is a good thing. Uh, it's not always good if this leaves too little money for the venture capitalists. Um, so because the because now there's much less uncertainty whether or not the project is good or bad, um, more risk-averse investors, different kind of investors, regular investors, are willing to come in and finance the project. And so venture capitalists don't have much of the upside left for them because of this competition from other investors to pick up the project. Now, and also, I would imagine the negotiation um, uh, abilities of the entrepreneur because there is valuation that, mm -hmm. is, uh, that, that is less uncertainty from an entrepreneurial perspective too, right? That's right. So the entrepreneur gets to keep much bigger chunk of the value of the project. So they are much less dependent on the financing from venture capitalists. So they can really have a stronger position in the negotiations. But stronger position is not necessarily a good thing if negotiation breaks down. Right. right. And, and this is what. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. Yeah, no, I, I was just wondering, you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, if you say that uh, this actually makes the markets more efficient, mm -hmm. um, but then if the VC model is fundamentally uh, an arbitrage between their know-how and let's call it uh, call it the entrepreneurial or entrepreneurs ignorance mm -hmm. um and are then, the investors uh, you know so if the vc <laughs> sorry and are the investors ignorance too right so they are acting on yeah, the so, private to them the vcs they're at, so they have some expectations. So it is sort of an information arbitrage. Mm -hmm. uh, that is what the business model is based on. Right. And if you say, you know, uh, the uh, the crowdfunding actually makes that market much more efficient. But unfortunately, uh, from a very practical perspective, um, I think what you're finding is that either the deals don't go through because upside is not high enough yep. uh, from a VC expectation perspective. Uh, or the upside is competed away, um, mm -hmm. and again, you know, with the same result. So the, some of the deals uh, are not going through. So the entrepreneur sort of left behind with just the small amount of money that they raised from the right. uh, from the crowdfunding right. action. Yeah. yeah. So there's the uh, another element in our analysis that that makes the entrepreneur really concerned about losing the VC financing, and that is unlike regular investors, unlike banks. VCs, um, they bring other value to the project besides the money. Mm. Many of the VCs have experience right. funding uh, similar kind of projects. They have networks to which they connect the entrepreneur to. They might have worked with the contract manufacturer. They might have worked with particular marketing division. They might have excellent management team that they can send to the entrepreneur to help them uh, with the process. And so there are uh, many non-monetary benefits of having good VCs in your project. So if you cannot compensate the VCs for that, and if the crowdfunding somehow right. takes away the upside for the VCs to participate, um, then they might not be willing to share those additional benefits, non-monetary benefits with the entrepreneur. And this is when the entrepreneur loses right. it. 
Right, right. And so, so from an entrepreneurial perspective here, crowdfunding could be okay. It gives you market tests. It gives you market acceptance signal. Right. But it doesn't necessarily, they shouldn't take that as a necessary it's view all into all valuation right. because, right? That's correct. In fact, we would argue that for the most yeah. part, uh, crowdfunding is fantastic development. For the most part, crowdfunding benefits everybody. For most of the projects, um, you get to learn how valuable or non-valuable your product is. And it's a good idea to learn that your product is not that interesting to the potential customers earlier on before you invest significant amount of money and effort on trying to develop it before it ultimately fails, right? So crowdfunding is a fantastic market testing mechanism that gives you this tremendous value of learning about the market. Uh, it's a fantastic mechanism for uh, attracting investors, right? So it's still there's a still significant positive element from crowdfunding uh, in being able to signal to VCs and other investors how wonderful your project is, so they come in and they give you money. So you resolve these information asymmetries that might stop the investors from giving you money. Um, so. Yeah, the reason I'm emphasizing the surprising element is because the obvious elements, they, they typically in the press, they typically in the media, and everybody kind of knows the, the predictable element of crowdfunding. The crowdfunding is fantastic, except it's not always fantastic, not for every project. And this is where this paper makes that uh, contribution. We are pointing out not just the benefits, and there are plenty of those, but figuring out that there could be downsides, that's the surprise and that's the novel. That's where we learn new things. Yeah, it is, it is quite interesting. You know, something that you, you, you don't, you know, kind of, uh, it's counterintuitive mm -hmm. in some sense, right? Uh, you would imagine getting more information, uh, market test, and, and even some money early on is beneficial for everybody, mm -hmm. uh, both for the, the starting company as well as the, the, the later capital provider. Yep. Uh, but that revelation is not necessarily um, leading to the, to, the, to the best outcome in some cases. Not, not um, I want to jump into another, yeah, go ahead. Yep, just confirming what you said. Yeah, yeah, so I want to uh, um, jump into another paper. So a uh, completely different area uh, promoting solar panel investments, feed-in tariff versus tax rebate policies. Mm -hmm. So um, we have had, you know, kind of different policies, right? I guess in Germany, there is a feed-in tariff policy, whether they, they basically give the, um, the, the, the installer of the solar panels a stream, a guaranteed stream of payments. Um, whereas in the U.S., we tend to have uh, tax breaks or or uh, tax rebates or whatever they call it right. um, for that initial investment, um, and so so you you are looking at here you know these two policies which which are actually quite different. One is uh, trying to get uh, people to invest early and then uh, you know take some of that uh, investment hit away from them, uh, but they are then kind of exposed to all the revenue uncertainties mm -hmm. downstream. Whereas other ones saying, okay, you go ahead and invest, but we will guarantee you some of the some of the revenues uh, downstream. So, so, so you're looking at these policies and asking which one might be a better policy. Right. 
break. Yep. Um, the key word there is variability um, and the different kind of variability that households that make a decision whether or not to invest in solar panels are exposed to. Uh, when we started thinking about this problem, our initial gut feel was that it doesn't really matter as long as you customize the policy such that the present value of the benefits from the feed-in tariff payments, right? These are the guaranteed payments uh, from the um, policy. Uh, match the tax deduction that you get on the tax rebate. The household shouldn't care which one is offered. And it's purely a matter of maybe political convenience or whatever else, why one country implements one policy and another country or countries implement other set of policies. Uh, but the more we uh, try to explore this question, uh, the more surprising answers we were getting. Um, and then we realized that what's driving these um, kind of surprising answers, the fact that there are actually reasons for the households and for the government to prefer one policy over another, there are systematic reasons that have to do with different forms of variability. The idea there comes from the fact that um, the households, they're making decisions dynamically. When the government offers a policy like feed and tariff or tax rebates, the households, they don't have to that instant go and buy the solar panels. They have some time to think about it. They have some time to process information. They have time to make decisions dynamically. The reason this is important is because over time, the prices of electricity, even at the retail level, and the cost of the solar panels, they fluctuate. They change and they change yeah. randomly. And what that creates is the behavior of the households that um, they don't want to give up an option of installing the panels mm -hmm. at the more favorable conditions in the future, or when the prices of electricity have turned in their favor even more. So the idea is that if, if you make a, if you install panels on top of your house, uh, you're giving up an option of not having done it. And that option is valuable if the environment in which you operate as a household has variability, has randomness. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we think about what randomness is there, right? We have those two dimensions. We have electricity prices and we have the cost of installation. So electricity prices affect the cash flows over time, whereas the cost of installation is a one-time cost on which you get tax rebate. And so it seems like the two policies, the feed-in tariff, that essentially says, regardless what the price of electricity in the market is, we, the government, we will pay you a fixed rate. It's a guaranteed price for a long period of time. That will take away the variability in the price from the household. But if the government gives you tax rebate, they reduce the amount of variability in the cost of the installation that you're exposed to as a household. And the two have strategic so consequences. Right, so, so, so the feed and tariff reduces revenue side uncertainty, the tax rebate reduces the cost side mm -hmm. uncertainty. Uh, but it's also the case, uh, Brad, I think, you know, I was just thinking about this. So 
um, in both cases, let's say the NPV is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, in the feed and tariff case, you have a lot of cash uh, sort of uh, in the later part of the part of the timeline. Right. Um, whereas the tax rebate case, you had less of that. So mm -hmm. from a homeowner perspective, uh, if he or she were to sell the home, uh, the value of this thing is is going to be different in right. in these two cases because right. uh, you know in the tax rebate case you have taken a lot of the value away already. Right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's correct. But even with, so, we don't have that consideration. This is a very important consideration um, that has to do with um, essentially how convex the cost function is for the households of access in the financial market. So is it better, how much better is it to get a lump sum of money right away, as opposed to having a stream of cash flows over time for the household? And there are preferences from the household's perspective uh, in that regard. But even taking that away, even assuming that this household is completely indifferent between the uh, stream of cash flows or the lump sum payment right now, as long as they have to make a decision between those two choices right now, even assuming that the way, yeah. because the households have this timing option, this is where strategic behavior yeah. of the households becomes very important. The fact that they can wait and install later when they think it's more convenient for them, when it, they, they think it's more likely they'll benefit from this. This type of waiting behavior uh, makes the household wait longer than what the government would want them to do. So that is you're saying in the case of the feed and tariff situation? In, in, in both cases, uh, when, this is a true statement. It's just that the government can control in both cases in different ways. Okay, so, but in the case of the tax rebate, so that, uh, there is some, you know, sort of, uh, lumpy timing issues there, right? So year end, uh, you know, sort right. of decision horizons. Um, as regimes change, they might take the tax rebate away. So, so I think the timing flexibility you have on the tax rebate side is probably lower, right? Um, so the the variability on the tax side comes from the fact that the cost of installation changes over time, we, because of the. Yeah. Um, improvements in technology, improvements in the processes, uh, fluctuations in the commodity markets for the solar panel ingredients, uh, components, right? Uh, those costs, they overall tend to go down, but they fluctuate a little bit. But the important part, they change. So if we are a household and we're thinking about, well, should we install the solar panel this year or next year? We have a strong incentive to wait until the next year because next year, our cost of installation will be much lower than this year. But the government wants to encourage us to install sooner rather than later to start deriving the environmental benefits. And so we okay. household want to have some kind of incentive telling us, hey, don't worry about the fact that the cost going down. We're going to, as a government, we're going to set the uh, policy in place that you as a household, you kind of indifferent between investing now versus next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can. They can also uh, sort of a little bit of a stick 
Yeah, in there too, that they could say, we're going to take a rebate away next year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this actually has at least the parameters of the policy. Yeah, this, yeah. this has happened, okay. for example, in Germany, they had to reevaluate their feed and tariff uh, levels. Um, and the reason they had to reevaluate the levels uh, is because the, the feed and tariff promised that uh, was given was no longer reflective of the prevailing market prices. And so the feed and tariff policies weren't providing enough of an incentive for the households. So that happened. Right. So these are both tax rebate. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. So both tax rebate and feed and tariff, they, they are fixed amounts. So, this, so they don't vary by percentages, right? Um, so implementation differs. So different countries okay. um, have different versions of those policies. Um, some countries have a combination of those policies. For example, as far as I know, India has some version that combines elements of the tax rebates and feed and tariff at the same time. Um, so mm -hmm. implementation details vary. Um, but overall, the idea is what uncertainty you want to control as a government, right? So the, the unfortunate thing is from the government's perspective is that households are too smart. They are delaying the investment because of the variability of cash flows, either because of the price of electricity or because of the cost going down. And what the government wants to do is remove that strategic weighting on the part of the households because that strategic weighting is optimal for the households, but it's suboptimal for the economy overall. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so you found uh, some policies to be more beneficial in certain cases. And, and so what, what, what was sort of the summary? Yep. Uh, so the big takeaway is that when um, we are in the economy where there's significant variability in prices of electricity, then the better policy is to implement feed and tariff. When we are in the economy where the cost of the solar panels is variable, then the better policy is to go for the tax rebate. In addition to that, so. In addition to that, no. So in well, I get finish yeah, my sentence. Um, in addition to that, we have other dimension of variability, which is how heterogeneous uh, households are in in the economy in their generating ability. Right. So if my house is in the shade, uh, and your house is in the sun, even so, we install the same panels. The amount of electricity we generate is quite different depending on which direction the house is facing, depending on how many sunny days, cloudy days per year uh, my neighborhood gets versus your neighborhood, we get different generation. And it turns out that because of the variability in the generating efficiency of the different households, the, these two policies also have different effects. And because of this, if we have a significant heterogeneity in the efficiency, uh, of the households, then tax rebate works much better. And so, so government's optimum policy uh, intuitively is, is really reducing the aggregate uncertainty faced by the That's consumer. That's right. 
there's revenue or cost. That's right? a very significant factor in the government's decision. How can we reduce the uncertainty? Because by reducing uncertainty, we expedite the investment on the part of the consumers without spending any more additional resources, right? So we can do two things. We can give households way more value or we can structure the way we're given the value such that even without giving additional money to the households, the households behave as if we're giving them more value. Right, right. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember you also found an interesting thing when you have high correlation mm -hmm. between cost and revenue. That's right. Right. So, so what, what was the finding there? Um, so the idea is that if you have a significant correlation between the cost and the revenue, uh, then the tax rebate works better. If you have a significant negative correlation between the cost and the revenue, then uh, feed-in tariff works better. And this is happening due to um, what we call a natural hedge. Um, yeah. From the government's perspective, um, what happens is that um, when so this this will take a little bit of time to explain. So I apologize right away for a long statement <laughs> that is about to come yeah. out. Um, so if we consider feed and tariff policies. If there's a positive correlation between the cost uh, of the solar panels and the prices of electricity, then what would happen is that uh, when we have a low investment costs, more households will sign up. The most households sign up, um, that they will be signing up under the positive correlation when the price of electricity, the market price is lower. Um, the government, which is effectively guaranteeing a high price of electricity through the feed-in tariff, uh, is ends up being a loser, right? Because we have low households signing up right, right. at the time when the value of electricity is actually quite small, but the government pays a large amount on the feed-in tariff to the household. So this gap between what the government pays and how much it's actually worth is quite large. Now, on the tax rebate, that doesn't right, exist. Right. If the correlation is positive, um, then when the households sign up, um, yeah, so they sign up only when the ratio between the prices um, and the cost exceeds certain value. And that ratio, when the correlation is positive, almost doesn't change. Um, and so even right. so, the prices themselves are highly variable. Even so, the costs themselves are highly variable. But because they're positively correlated from the perspective of the households, there's very little variability in their cash flows overall. And so that reduces the right, uncertainty right. of the households and so the government doesn't need to compensate the households nearly as much yeah so ultimately it reduces the volatility on the revenue side uh, when you have high correlation right, right? and so, so if i if i understand this correctly rod you know so in most cases it appears that tax rebate policies are dominant except 
in in a case where price variability is is very high right. uh and it is sort of either uncorrelated with cost or has some sort of mm-hmm. negative correlation which is unlikely let's say uncorrelated with cost uh and and has high uh, price variability that's the only case where you have feed and tariff to be done um in the table that is certainly a correct statement in practice uh, we need yeah. to allocate what fraction of the time we end up in that situation versus other situations right and so there are other parameters that we need to consider like the uh, environmental benefits the government derives for the whole society they affect how much the government prefers one policy versus another policy um depending on various parameters that we end up um observing in practice um we might have feeling the other, quite popular it's just that relative to yeah. status quo if we change the parameter a little bit uh it might become less popular relative to tax rebate but it's still a popular policy so it's it's really relative to each other which one is kind of becoming more or less popular as we change the variability in prices variability in costs very correlation and heterogeneity but the government might still be better off uh with using feed and tariff in a lot of cases it depends on how there there's a i would imagine there is a cultural dimension to to this too um it's a function of how the households internalizes um mm-hmm. information how do they look at right. risk you know and and those types of things and from a practical perspective when you have feed and tariff you have actually higher variability i think on your mm-hmm. budgets right yeah. as opposed to yeah. tax rebates and so from a policy perspective you have to you have to think about right. that so if the households are highly risk averse because they don't have uh easy access to the market to smooth out their consumption um then they would value the um tax rebate the big lump sum payment uh, more so than uh, gradual payments from the feed and tariff so if if we have a country where and, this is the case yeah. then they should certainly uh, lean more towards given tax rebates yeah so so i i don't know if we can do this but can we read into this idea that uh, tax rebates are more common in in america as opposed to eu uh, and uh, and places like india mm-hmm. is there anything that you know sort of says that you know the population's expectations are different it could be that explanation another explanation could be that in the us there's much more variability in the uh, in the weather in the sun exposure like even if we take california if you go from southern mm-hmm. california to northern california there's quite a bit of variability in the uh, exposure to sun number right. of sunny days and how much you can generate electricity from it um as opposed to if you look at netherlands that's much more uniform like just weather patterns i mean they may be not sunny but they're uniform and same goes uh for spain right so that's it's a sunny place but it's consistently sunny um 
And so if you have very high variability in, in your sunny days across the population, then tax rebate is a preferred policy. So that might be the explanation. That, that's, in my mind, that is a more likely uh, reason why tax rebate is uh, used more in the U.S. We, we are a big country. Okay, okay. And <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to go into another paper, um, again, you know, very different area. So R&D investments in the presence of knowledge spillover and debt uh -huh. financing. Uh, I find it really, really interesting. Um, and so uh, you say that in an industry with knowledge spillover and debt financing, equilibrium investments in R&D projects are subject to uh, different economic forces. Um, spillover meaning uh, a firm uh, partakes in R&D and that information gets out to market. Somebody else can take, uh, take advantage of that. Uh, and spillover uh, also uh, causes free riding. So somebody can sit back and say, let somebody else invest. And then once information is available, uh, I can sort of free ride on that. Um, and then you are connecting that idea with uh, the capital structure mm -hmm. of the firm and how those incentives could potentially counteract mm -hmm. this, right? So my experience is from pharmaceutical R&D, and I can see, you know, essentially the sort of the same sort of things there too. But you're looking at, I think, uh, shale, right? right? That would be um, as a use case. Yeah, yeah. So do sure, you absolutely. About that um, we... There are no shortage of news about the shale oil and shale gas. Um, when we started working on this paper, the motivation was, well, this is an industry that is exporting. Um, the amount of um, oil and gas that was generated through, through fracking um, exceeded that of like regular normal production. Uh, it made the US the net exporter of oil, uh, you know, if we think about back to the 70s, 80s, when the uh, US was a big importer of oil, now we're the big exporter. And so it's an industry that is very important to understand what is going on there. So it seems to be very, very uh, fast growing industry. Um, and the other trend that we observe at the same time is that in that industry, the leverage of the firms was just going through the roof. Um, we have a picture from like the economist and we have leverage gone up five times uh, in 12 years in the shale industry. So it gone from just about one to about five. Um, and so we were thinking, is there a connection? I mean, there's obviously a connection, but is there a causal connection that might be explaining both the growth in the industry and the fact that we have this very high leverage is, you know, if the leverage is uh, driving the growth, what is the mechanism by which this is happening, right? Besides the obvious one, if you have more money slushing around, you know, you're going to put that money somewhere. Um, and I think we have a good explanation of at least one force that might be happening. Um, and it was interesting because now we see that many of those shale uh, firms um, are failing uh, because they cannot sustain the high leverage that they picked up initially. 
And there's a significant consolidation happening right now in the shale industry, um, which is due to the fact that uh, the leverage is just unsustainable, just way too much leverage. Um, but the interesting part in our story is that it says that despite what we normally think of finance, um, that debt is bad, that could lead to all kinds of negative outcomes, that would actually have a positive social effect. Um, and that comes in the, uh, in the form of creating an incentive for the firms to take risks. Right? So in, in, in your classical finance literature, that is a bad thing because um, there's this force that uh, owners of the firm, the insiders of the firm, if they get money from the external investors in the form of debt, that encourages the insiders of the firm to start taking risks, right? They go and they gamble with somebody else's money. So why not gamble, <laughs> right? So go to the casino. Uh, what we're arguing is that sometimes we want them to go and gamble. And when do we want to, them to go and gamble? We want them to go and gamble in the cases where they would have been underinvesting in good projects otherwise. And the shale investment, we think, was one such example. The idea there was that um, you know, shale technology has developed quite rapidly. Um, the reason it developed quite rapidly is because it's fairly easy to imitate. It's not like pharmaceutical where you have strict patents that uh, if one firm invests in yeah. drug and they discover this drug, they get to keep uh, this drug in their portfolio for a long time and reap the benefits, right? Nobody else can start producing exactly the same drug until the patent has expired. So that's not the level of protection that exists in the shale industry. If somebody comes up with a great idea of drilling horizontally and then taking turns and you know going sideways and all of those wonderful technological developments and putting particular kind of chemicals on the ground that makes it easier to extract the oil, it's impossible to keep it to yourself. Somebody else will copy it right away. You cannot stop them. And so, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, interesting, Raj. So. I think I think you're right about the pharma R and D problem, but there is actually qu quite a significant spillover effect there too, because ah. firms can uh, sit back and look. So there are classes of chemicals, right? Ah. So when when somebody starts uh, inventing in an area, you get a lot of information around the toxicology effects of that class, and 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 you can actually build on it. Right. So if you look at the pharma industry, you will find that. A very successful products in the pharma industry are never the first one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's typically the second or third one. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so there's the first mover advantage, but there's a second mover advantage too. You are worried about yeah, right. kinds of yeah. mistakes. That's right. That's right, that's right. So in this case, you are saying, so when you take high levels of debt, mm -hmm. Um, the equity of the firm, uh, you know, is sort of out of, uh, out of the money call option that becomes uh, more and more, uh, you know, tempting for managers of the firm to, to really take tremendous amount of risk because that's the only way they're going to make yep. money. That's right. That's right. And so what we end up having is that if we would be, what's important here is the word equilibrium, right? So equilibrium in the industry is that if we have a number of firms who are considering 
either doing innovative projects or doing copycat projects. Um, We want at least some of them to do innovative projects as a society, right? Um, And so, but from their perspective, selfishly, they look around and they say, well, you know, I'm actually much better off waiting for somebody else to take the first step and then seeing if they succeed or not. And if they succeed, I'll just copy them, right? I want to be a copycat. It's much better strategy from a selfish perspective, from individual firm perspective. Um, but as you said, if we have a high level of debt, the only way then for the managers and insiders of the firm to make money is to start taking on more of the innovative projects, more risky projects that have huge payoffs if they're successful, or you lose all of the money that you have, but it's somebody else's money. So what do you care? Right. And I'm being facetious. (laughs) Uh, Of course, of course you care. Um, but what, what's interesting is that if we look at this industry from the perspective of society, what do we want them to do? We want some of them to innovate or we want more of them to innovate than actually do if we leave them to their own devices. We cannot just go there and, well, we have a number of mechanisms. Uh, we can go and create policy and maybe give tax incentives for innovation. And we, we have lots of tools that we can provide. But why not use the tool that's already there, which is they're already taking on significant amount of money. Why not encourage them to take on more money, more debt? Mm. Um, And what we show is that if they do take more debt, effectively, this drives them towards the solution, which is optimal for the society. Mm. Right. So the interesting part for us there, it's kind of cute result, is that the free riding is a bad thing if, if it exists on its own. The risk taken when you have too much debt, it's also a bad thing when it exists on its own. But if you take those two negative forces and you merge them in one industry, suddenly these two negative forces create a positive result, which is the outcome. It's as if we as a society were telling them what to do and they were following us. (laughs) Right. Right. I, uh, you know, I was reading the paper. I I also wondered, this will be a minor effect, uh, but, uh, do you think there'll be some effect of sort of the compensation structures um, of the firms? You know, if, if compensation is more skewed toward options and, Definitely. Uh, you know, those types of things, uh, that might Definitely. have a positive effect as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So depending how the managers who are making those decisions are compensated, if they are encouraged to take on more risks, so if they have lots of options in their compensation portfolio, that will exacerbate the effect of uh, taking on more debt. It effectively increases the leverage from their perspective, uh, and they'll take on more risky projects. If they have, however, um, significant job concerns, right? So the force that might be working against us here is that uh, when firms fail, for managers, it's not a not a good thing. It's hard for the markets to differentiate between managers that um, failed because they don't have the right skills, they're not competent, and managers who just weren't lucky and the industry forces you know, kind of made it so um, that their firm failed and the next firm will be super successful. Um, because of inability of the markets, labor markets, to differentiate between failure due to your incompetence and just bad luck, uh, the managers have significant incentive not to fail 
and that makes them more risk averse and that could work against us here. Right, right. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, so there is a sort of a firm level of uh, interesting observation, which is if you are in a high knowledge spillover industry with a lot of free riding problems, uh, those firms might be better off having compensation uh, very much skewed toward, um, you know, risk-taking, uh, encouraging risk-taking in the firm mm -hmm. uh, that might, you know, that might push them to a more optimum position uh, from an investment posture. And more macro uh, observation, if I understand this correctly, Vlad, you're saying that uh, perhaps it might be even beneficial to have, uh, to encourage uh, higher levels of debt. So would you, uh, would there be tax policies um, that that would uh, that would do that? That would steer the firms towards taking more debt. That's certainly yeah. one way to accomplish that. Yes, absolutely. Right. right. So when you are uh, given a tax shield um, on the interest payments, that's a classic example that the tax policies are pushing the firms towards taking on more debt. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this has been uh, this has been great, Vlad. I I'm sorry I, we couldn't get to some of your other papers. I found all of them extremely interesting. You're very kind. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yeah, good luck with all this research. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye.